This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And you know, today we want to talk a little bit about why people maybe want to consider healthcare as a career. It can be quite rewarding. We're delighted we've got Patrick Rohan with us today. He's the Chief Executive Officer at Medical City Frisco. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, and uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You know, let's just kind of start at the beginning. What motivated you to consider entering the field of healthcare? Sure. You know, I grew up in South Florida, and growing up as a child, uh, my mother was a nurse, father was a firefighter, and had the ability to grow up and experience through them the impact of giving to others, giving to their fellow human, giving to their community, how rewarding it was um, when they came home. And, and got to see that even more as I grew older and got to go to the firehouse or got to go to the hospital and hear their colleagues, uh, their peers and, and people they worked with kind of just brag on them about how, how great it was to work with them and, and all the great stuff they, they got to do. And, and, and just seeing that throughout my early life, adolescence, and, and just the, the passion, the reward of it that they saw through their eyes just really got me interested in getting involved in a, in a field that I didn't know at that age specifically it would be healthcare, um, but I knew I wanted to do something that taking my talents, my abilities, whatever you know, my strengths were, and, and finding a position um, to focus on of, of leveraging those uh, to give back and experience that same feeling I saw them have uh, growing up. You know, as you look at the field of healthcare, there's the business side, the clinical side, obviously working in a hospital, working in nursing homes, et cetera, et cetera. How did you finally narrow down and decide what role you wanted to play? Sure. So I took uh, one biology class uh, in college and knew immediately it was not going to be the clinical side. Um, I have the utmost respect for our clinicians, whether it be a nurse, a, a physician, that pathway is incredibly uh, challenging and requires and demands a lot of uh, intense dedication and focus to the profession. With that said, um, I started you know, taking more and more business courses uh, throughout my college and postgraduate curriculum. And really, I, I think just it, it clicked more for me. Um, and then it, I, I think it really solidified when I took on my first, I would say, resident role or intern role as some may experience it. And sitting, I got to sit in, in a COO office at a hospital, you know, while I was doing my, my graduate degree and really see the day-to-day workings of, of more of an operational side and a business side of a hospital. And every day for the COO I was working with was different. They, you know, some was focused on, one day was focused on construction, designing a, a new build. One day was focused on a budget and preparing, you know, next year's financials. One day was looking at labor management. You know, one day was rounding and talking to the staff, you know, and that variability combined with the, the, the core business tenets of finance, strategy, planning, that really just let me know that this profession, 
hospital business and hospital administration, like that's the pathway I want to go down. Just made much more sense to me, click for me right from an early age of my career. You know, Patrick, regardless of what career people take, when you're on the job, you're going to have some days that are just days that you feel really good. There are other days that are challenging. As you look at your career, what are some of the most rewarding days you've experienced? The reward really comes, I think, from the people side of what we do. And, you know, we always have goals that are, you know, great to achieve, whether it's volume or earnings or, you know, patient experience scores, things like that, that are tangible goals. You know, those are always fun to, to, to be successful at and, and meet those. But what is the most rewarding personally for me, and, and I say the people side, because there's, there's multiple angles I look at it is, is seeing the, the impact that we can make and have with the people that walk in and out of the, the hospital. And that's not just patients, it's our staff, it's the family members of our staff, the family members of patients. And, and some examples to me are when I get to see a, a colleague or a staff member progress and really advance their career and get promoted, and especially into some bigger leadership roles, that's really rewarding. You know, when I get to have interactions with patients, you know, in the hospital or, or post-discharge about their words of how we made them feel when they were here is also the most rewarding. It's something that if I am having to your question a more difficult day or a more challenging day personally at work, how I really, I think, address that or, or try to, to level set and get grounded again is to go around in the hospital and talk with staff, sit there at the, the station, lean, lean against it and have just more of a, a personal conversation and connection. Go talk to patients you know, go talk to family members that are waiting while their, their loved ones in surgery are getting an you know, imaging exam done, et cetera. That really is the most rewarding grounding part of this job and, and really, I think, recenters your focus and recenters the, the you know, why um, you're here, why you're doing this. You know, in your role as CEO, it's obvious that you're the leader of the hospital uh, that you represent. But at the same time, you have to be a mentor. And you have to help your colleagues, especially if they're having challenges. How do you view your role as CEO in mentoring and helping colleagues with challenges? You know, I think that that's more true over the last two or three years than any other time. Um, I think people are experiencing a, a combination of challenges, be it professional, uh, personal health, you know, pandemic, finance, recessionary you know, trends, things like that, I think are just compounding stressors on just their day-to-day job. You know, my role is to be, you know, a sounding board is to be available, accessible uh, to everyone. And that's not just our leaders of that we consider, you know, quote unquote, pure, true leaders as managers and directors, supervisors. This is for all of our staff. Uh, Every orientation, I, I speak to the incoming colleagues and let them know, and they truly mean, like my door is always open to discuss and talk about their career, their just life, if they need to just chat and bounce something off that they want to convey or, you know, have an ear to bend about something. And, you know, prime example is, you know, I had a, an employee, I believe last week, that is one of our surgical techs and just wanted to talk about kind of what their future potential could be. And I think if you, if you hold true to kind of what your commitment is, that really buys engagement and ties in the team to be dedicated and to continue to work through, you know, some of the most difficult times in this profession. Um, and I think we've been able to do that, not just myself, but I asked my team to have that same mindset. And, and I think that's worked well. And I think 
that's one of the most important parts of being a mentor is, is giving that availability and accessibility um, as a CEO, because some of the comments or one of the, the more trended themes I hear is, you know, I worked at other hospitals or other, other healthcare facilities. And, you know, uh, you just really don't have that ability to just call, text, email the CEO and see if you can get some time with him or her. Um, and it's just really nice to have. So it's something, again, I enjoy doing, but I think it's one of the most important things to be able to do in today's time. These are the wise words of Patrick Rohan. He's the chief executive officer at Medical City Frisco. When we come back, if your teenager could ask Pat Rohan a question, it would be this one next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're talking with Patrick Rohan, who is the Chief Executive Officer at Medical City Frisco. This is a beautiful facility. You can see pictures of it online if you just search it up, Medical City Frisco. And they are expanding, adding about a third more capacity. Steve? To our listeners out there, and especially the young people that are deciding on a career, here's a question I bet they'd ask you. Tell us, what are the advantages of going into healthcare and choosing it as a career. Sure. So with it, you know, to start with any career, it, and I tell the the people I work with, back to the mentoring conversation, is is whatever you decide to do or want to do, you got to enjoy waking up and driving to work. And if you don't do that, and if you go more for a career that is financially driven or motivated by the potential salary or earnings or you know stature and a title. And, and disregard the, the, the happiness factor of your drive-in, then you're never, it's never going to be a success. Um, with that said, healthcare, uh, why I think it, it's an excellent choice for a you know, selection and career is one, uh, sustainability. There, there's always going to be a demand and a need for healthcare, healthcare leadership. Um, and I think that's, that's going to not only be stable now, but it's going to be continue to grow as the population grows and ages there's going to be more and more of a need for that profession um, and depth and bench of, of people to, to take on some of the more critical management and leadership roles and, and across the country and in multiple, you know, venues of, of healthcare, whether it be hospital, whether it be, you know, physician offices, urgent care, um, long-term acute care, nursing homes. I think that's one of the greatest benefits of this job is, is kind of not job security, but just the overall demand and, and sustainability of it is great. The reward I think you get from having an impact on people's lives, not only in the immediate, you know, ability to take care of someone, but just the long-term impact that a person has experiencing whatever offering or whatever area you work in with you is just of the utmost reward of, of a great feeling you can get. And, you know, we had a, a patient's husband call us you know, call me and, you know, when someone, you know, asks for the CEO's phone number, one of my colleagues or one of my staff will say, Hey, so-and-so asked for your number. They want to call you. Can I give it to them? And historically that's never going to be a great conversation. Typically ends up being a, some opportunities they want to, you know, convey to you. But when the husband called me, uh, it was about his wife and, and came to the hospital, you know, had a procedure done, um, and, and was in and out within, you know, 48 hours. Right. And you don't typically get to see the post discharge impact of, of what your team is able to do. And 
they just said they've been in healthcare in 20 years in this market, multiple hospitals, both patients and working. And this was by far the most um, wonderful experience they had at a hospital and not just the cure and taking care of them was one part, but it was how they were made to feel as a family. They were made to feel as, as just individual people and not just another patient and, and then donated, you know, to our hospital employees, $20,000 uh, for our, you know, hope fund, which, is something that employees utilize in times of need um, for financing, you know, difficult uh, situations they may have. And just that part of it, choosing healthcare, getting to, to have that connection um, is, is, again, one of the biggest rewards you can get every day doing this. Patrick, what's the hiring landscape uh, at Medical City Frisco now? Are there jobs available? Sure. So great question. Uh, there are jobs available and especially um, very excited. Uh, we're finishing a $91 million new tower expansion uh, that's adding 36 beds to the hospital, uh, which will bring us to a total of 98. And uh, we're hiring all over the, all over the board. Uh, we're hiring nurses, we're hiring techs, and uh, we're hiring front office, food and nutrition, environmental services, lab technicians. And uh, it's a great time to, to be part of the Medical City Frisco family. And um, obviously, we have our website that has all those jobs uh, lined out. Uh, great benefits, great support for growth, and uh, would, would always entertain uh, any even listener that wanted to talk about a future career here at the hospital. Well, that's awesome because I know so many people are concerned about the economy now. And as you've said, this is a great place to kind of seek a shelter in the storm, if you will. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and again, back to the conversation about, you know, I think a stable profession and a stable career is, you know, I'm very proud of, of not only Medical City Frisco, but our parent company, HCA and the organization, you know, the, the, the most important asset we have is our people. And even when we went through the pandemic at its height, you know, from March of 2020 to today, you know, we made a commitment across all 182 hospitals that uh, we weren't going to furlough anyone. We weren't going to term anyone or, or have layoffs. And we kept every single employee employed. Um, even when there wasn't work to do and they were at home, we paid them, you know, 70% of their salary until the work came back. And that's just one, I think, uh, an example and a time of how we treat and have a, how we have a philosophy of who our employees are to us and, and their family. And that's how we treat every single one of them. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that period of time that most of us would rather forget those two and a half years of the really intense time when healthcare was in such a spotlight. And I know that the dust has settled from that. So as you walk the halls now, how are the employees doing that they've had some time to get things back together and establish more normalcy? You know, I, I would say uh, they are back to, I would say, even above baseline before the pandemic in terms of their engagement, in terms of the positivity and the culture. Um, and I could tell that two ways. One, we do a biannual employee engagement survey where, you know, we, we have an engagement index and that, that scores, I think it's about 10 questions. And, and the two of the questions that give us kind of the best reading of engagement or highly engaged slash happy employees is, you know, do you enjoy working here? And would you refer to a friend? And if they answer the highest score of five out of five, let's say for both, that's what we consider highly engaged. Um, and over four out of every five employees answered, you know, five out of five or a highest rating for both of those. Um, I think it was around 81, 82% highly engaged. That tells me the numbers that the workforce is, is really engaged. Culture is good. But when I walk the halls, the positivity is palpable. You feel it. Um, the team works collaboratively, not in silos. There's a lot of good energy and conversation and smiles and 
you know, talking when I walk through there about families, about what they're excited about the school year, the sports, the vacations. It, it's a really good time. And I think that the hospital staff and colleagues weathered the storm and, and rebounded, I think, even better coming out of it than, than the way that they were going into it. You know, and I'll bet another thing, and you have a beautiful facility. Anybody can just get on the website and take a look at Medical City Frisco and see how incredible the building is already. But I'm sure that it's full of nice new technology to make everybody's jobs integrate better. And that was a piece that you and Steve didn't touch on, the technology side of healthcare, which from your perspective as CEO, you have to acquire it and keep it running. But even outside the hospitals, there are people who develop a good career selling it to people like you as well. Yeah, I would say, you know, we put a heavy, heavy investment in technology in this campus. Um, on one side, I will say nursing. Um, every, you know, we provide at the hospital, you know, iPhones for all of our staff. Every single staff and employee gets a, what we call iMobile, an iPhone. It's connected with all the physicians, all the different departments. Um, it allows for ease of communication and orders and being able to just integrate the entire network of all of our colleagues and our patients into one device that everyone has. And that's just really streamlined the ability to get things done, to communicate, uh, which is typically the biggest challenge in our profession. Um, and, and so that was, that was a huge win for our team. Um, I think the other kind of technological advancement is I think it's little known or not maybe well known. We have the most robotic platforms and surgical advances and technologies in this area. And we have, I think, I believe over now eight different robots for different service lines like spine and joint uh, and general surgery and, and 3D augmented reality, you know, spine navigation um, and, and probably about eight or nine million dollars of, I would say, robotic and navigation platforms in our OR because we're an immensely busy surgical hospital that have really provided great patient outcomes, have really drawn physicians to come to the hospital and in this market, they know they're the ones that really dictate, you know, where the patients go and, and have the trust and confidence based off our investment that we're the destination of choice to bring their patients uh, for care. And, and that investment, I think, has paid off and has built that great experience, the great quality that in, in a facility or destination to, to take care of. You know, Patrick, you've done a great job explaining about your personal choice to go into healthcare. As we close this interview, do you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom to people considering healthcare as a career? Yeah, I think final thoughts and words of wisdom is there's going to be ups and downs and there's going to be, you know, really challenging times. And it's focusing again on, on the why you, we all got into it is we're taking care of people in their most vulnerable time or one of their most vulnerable times in their lives. And, you know, where, where their comfort, where their, you know, support at that time. And, that's the real why, and, and whatever the challenge may be, that really kind of helps focus and ground us of, of what we do as healthcare leaders. We've been listening to Pat Rohan, who is the chief executive officer at Medical City Frisco. And those positions that he mentioned that were open are listed on their website. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about some documents that you should have in order that if you don't and you had an accident and were rendered unconscious, a committee might be in charge of your health. Do we have your attention? Find out what we're talking about next on the human side of healthcare. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're going to be talking about advanced directives, and we couldn't have a better person to discuss this with than Christopher White, who's a certified educator and also a director of spiritual care at Parkland Health. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be with you. You know, I'm sure some of the listeners may not know what we mean by advanced directives. So can you define advanced directives and why they're so important? Yeah, so advanced directives are basically a legal document that allows you to spell out what you would most like when it comes to end-of-life care or who you would like to make that kind of decision for you if you were not able to. Uh, these documents are really helpful. As you can imagine, anytime somebody is in the hospital, um, it's a, a time of great stress for the family. And knowing what a loved one prefers when it comes to end-of-life care um, helps to take some of the burden um, off of the family and allows that person's voice to be respected and, and honored um, as they approach the end of their life. You know, I know these conversations are not easy, but would you recommend talking to family members in advance and discussing these in detail? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do recommend uh, those conversations to take place, you know, really as soon as possible. As you mentioned, they are stressful conversations for us to have. None of us wants to talk about our own death um, or about what we would want, you know, if we were to find ourselves in a place where we were not able to speak um, about what we would like. And so um, the sooner to have that conversation, the better. I think this is great that you're having this, this dialogue now uh, and to have a difficult conversation that doesn't have to last really long, but it does need to be involved so that everybody feels like they understand what everybody would want if they were to find themselves in that unfortunate position. What age should you begin these discussions? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, even though it's hard to think about this, Anybody over the age of 18 um, can do these advanced care planning documents. So good to have this conversation with college-age children. Helpful to have uh, these conversations as young adults uh, because, like you said, you never know uh, when you might find yourself or find a loved one in an unimaginable situation. So uh, the sooner the better. As you counsel people and work with them regarding advanced directives, what advice do you have if when they talk with family members, those family members don't agree with what they want done? Yeah, I mean, that, that does come up sometimes. You know, the, the best that we can do from our perspective, and, and I'm a chaplain, and so um, a lot of our chaplains are having these dialogues with families who, do not, you know, who may not have the same idea um, about what is best for their loved one. What we, we try to do is we try to help patients and others, you know, find somebody in the family who you know is going to be an advocate on your behalf. Make your wishes very clear to that person, uh, and you probably are going to want to select that person to be your, what they call a medical power of attorney. Um, and that'll be the person that the medical team would actually be speaking to, to basically back up the decisions that you've already made about what you would like. But as you mentioned, there is going to be sometimes some conflict within a family system. There's not a lot that we can do to avoid the conflict, but we do really recommend that, that people find at least one or two people, maybe an alternate, 
um, that, that they would select to provide that same decision on their behalf. You know, you mentioned advanced directives, and then you mentioned power of attorney. How many documents are we talking about? I usually recommend two documents. There's one document that's called the Directive to Physicians, Family, or Surrogates. It goes by the, the name The Living Will, and that's a document where you can spell out pretty uh, succinctly what you would like as you approach uh, different uh, treatment decisions um, in your course of treatment. That's basically how you communicate to the medical team. You're saying, this is what I would like if I find myself in these situations. The other document is called the Medical Power of Attorney, uh, MPOA for short. And that's when we're going to ask people to select somebody to make decisions on their behalf if for some reason they're not able to to voice uh, their preference. And so I usually ask uh, family members and patients to fill out one of those documents, and, and oftentimes both so that everybody's on the same page about what they want. You know, in the medical power of attorney that you mentioned, if you're incapacitated, would that be also in a situation where someone was in a coma and there was decisions that needed to be made? Certainly, yeah. Uh, So anytime somebody is um, incapacitated for whatever reason, um, whether it's a coma or they're just not able to, to speak for some reason, this form is, is, is what we would kind of depend on to say, who is the next person that we need to speak to to make sure that we can honor this person's wishes? Krister, this is Thomas. I'd like to follow up on that. If you had a advanced directive sitting at home in the dresser somewhere and you were in that situation, you were rendered unconscious and you said, I do not want to be resuscitated Are you saying that those two physicians in that moment, unable at two in the morning to contact the next or even find the next of kin, that they're going to keep you alive? Yeah, it's a requirement for physicians. Unless they know otherwise, um, they have to treat to help the patient remain alive. If we happen to have the information, let's say that it happens to be in our electronic health care record, at that point, you know, we, we exhaust every option um, to communicate and to speak with next of kin. For a lot of our patients who don't have people, um, sadly, that conversation then becomes a conversation for uh, an ethics committee. And between the ethics committee and the treating physicians, at that point, they would be the ones who would make decisions. So for the most part, we're really trying to get in touch with um, at least legal next of kin um, in the absence of these documents then this becomes a really big scenario that probably a lot of us have overlooked. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, this is probably the most important thing that I know that my team is involved in, um, in terms of how this impacts families and how it impacts medical care um, at the end of life. And it's, it's one of those things that you don't even think about until you find yourself in that situation, and by then it's too late. To our listeners out there that may go, hey, I know I need to do this, but I can't afford an attorney. What do you tell them? Well, thankfully, the the forms themselves do not require uh, the use of an attorney. So we use the language medical power of attorney, but these forms can be completed just within a family. The forms themselves, uh, you can find them online. You can find them at any hospital or hospice. Those forms are going to be able to be filled out by hand. Uh, You will uh, either have two witnesses um, who will sign the forms that basically make that form a legal document, Um, or you can use a a notary who can also notarize the document, but it does not require uh, the use of attorneys. 
So Krista, what do you advise people if they travel a lot? Oh, let's use an example. They live in Oklahoma, but they work in Texas and they cross the state line. They're involved in a serious car accident. Do the states honor different states' advanced directives? We do, yeah. So if, if you come to us from Oklahoma, for example, and you hopefully happen to travel with your um, advanced care planning documents, the physicians and the other medical team here at Parkland or any hospital in this area are going to honor that document uh, because the document is just kind of a way to deliver uh, your wishes. All advanced directives um, are honored across state lines. So I've completed the forms. What do I do with them? Because I could be involved in a car accident. They take me to a hospital, but I don't have those forms with me. That's a great question. So probably your best bet um, is once you have completed the documents, they've been witnessed or they've been notarized. At that point, it's a good idea for you to uh, make copies of the documents themselves. Give copies of those documents to loved ones. Make sure especially that your medical power of attorney has a copy of that document. And if you have a medical home, let's say that's uh, Parkland or Baylor or Methodist here in the, the DFW area, make sure that you send them a copy of that so that they can upload that into your electronic health record. That way, if you were to come into that hospital system, we would already have that information on file um, about what your wishes are. If you've given power of attorney to an individual that they themselves have become incapacitated or passed away, what are your thoughts about what the person should then do? If a patient or if a, a member of a family knows that this person is no longer going to be able to serve in that capacity, um, it would be a good idea to uh, draw up a new medical power of attorney um, with somebody who would be available. One of the things that, that is a part of the medical power of attorney already is the ability to uh, elect alternate agents. So um, just in case your MPOA is not available, um, you might select one or two other people who could fill that role in the event that the MPOA was not available for whatever reason. So the first part would be, if you already know, go ahead and fill out a new one with a new, um, a new alternate agent. And if you are not able to do that, hopefully your, your medical power of attorney already has an alternate agent selected so that we know who to go to next. You know, for our listeners that really want more information and they want to do a little more research before they fill in the forms, any advice on what they can do or where they can go? Certainly, yeah. Um, a couple places. Um, here at Parkland Health, you can go to our website, um, www.parklandhealth.org, um, backslash ethics-resources. That's going to give you all the information uh, related to advanced care planning um, that we have for Parkland Health. You can also go to the um, Texas government website, uh, which is www.hhs.texas.gov backslash advance-directives. Um, and that will also bring you uh, information about um, all the different kinds of documents that are available um, and how to fill those out. We're talking with Krista White. He's the Director of Spiritual Care at Parkland Health. We're talking about, obviously, advanced directives and medical power of attorney. When we come back, we're going to talk about how dementia might play into this and ask Krista about using technology to really make your wishes known. Check out our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. It's on all the major podcast players and on YouTube. Human Side of Healthcare will be right back. 
covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're talking about advanced directives and the medical power of attorney. Our guest is Krister White. He's the director of spiritual care at Parkland Health. These are two documents that if you don't have on file with a hospital system or that you don't have with you in the case of an accident, as you heard in the last segment, it's possible that even a committee would be deciding your care. And yet it is a delicate subject to address. Our listeners out there say, you know, Krista, you make a lot of sense, but I just don't know where to get started. This is a delicate subject to bring up to family members. What is your advice? The way that I would probably address this is, um, at least in my own family life, nothing happens unless it's, unless it's scheduled. So I'm thinking maybe a few weeks down the road, if it were my family, I would say, I would really like to spend maybe 30 minutes to an hour for us to have a conversation about what I would like um, in the event that I were not able to make decisions for myself. You know, have the conversation um, you may even have copies of those documents available. Um, those documents are, are readily available online. Um, you can just search online for advanced directives in the state of Texas. Um, have those printed out. Make everybody aware of what you're wanting and then see who would be willing to serve in that um, medical power of attorney capacity. And really, that person's only job is to back up the decisions that you've already uh, elected. You've already decided about what you want you find yourself in that situation. So like you said, it is a very delicate conversation. Death denial is a real thing. But if we don't have these conversations, it creates a lot of heartache um, down the road and a lot of confusion among families. What if someone is in a situation and they don't have a designated power of medical attorney and they don't have advanced directives? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, and that, that happens frequently. You know, there is, a, there is an established kind of tree that we kind of moved down uh, when we have somebody that comes into the hospital who is unable to make decisions for themselves, or at least for the time being, they don't have people with them. So we're looking for um, who is considered the legal next of kin um, for this patient. And whoever is considered the legal next of kin, whether that is the spouse, if there is a spouse involved, common law partner, um, if there is an adult child. So we're, we're kind of going through a list to figure out who is the next person who would be in line to make this decision. So, you know, part of the work of the medical team is to make sure that we can uh, stabilize and, and to try to help um, every patient that comes through our doors. Sometimes it's really difficult for us to locate uh, legal next of kin. And in the absence of that, that kind of information, uh, you have um, a couple things possibly happening. You know, one of them is you may have somebody who, who kind of plays the role of a surrogate decision maker until we can locate the legal next of kin. Um, the other option, depending on uh, the nature of uh, what the concern might be, is you might have to have two doctors fill that role and provide a, a two-doctor consent. Krister, this is Thomas again. Let me give you a scenario that I'm familiar with. This is a person who has been active even into her 80s. She has dementia, but she has still maintained self-sufficiency. When she had her full faculties, she did her documents and had a designated medical power of attorney. A few months ago, she broke her leg. It will never be weight-bearing again. 
Care options at home were not possible, so she's in a facility. Her directives said that if she could not be self-sufficient, that she wanted to go on. However, after her surgery, it became a point of contention because the medical team said that she could survive, which obviously she could, and that that was not what she meant. So now she is laying in a bed in a facility. Thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think what the, what the physicians and what, what others who may be involved might want to better understand is what is the spirit behind what this person has written down? Is this quality of life? Um, is this what they would want? Or um, if this is not in line with uh, what they would consider to be um, a life worth living, how does the family um, in this scenario um, help make decisions that are going to support those wishes? And can those be communicated with some unanimity uh, among the family so that they feel like that they're doing right by this loved one? But it's very common um, for families to disagree about what somebody has written in their advanced directive to the physician, for example. But yeah, it's a very difficult situation. Well, and it brings the, as I was processing this in my own mind, dementia has an impact or is kind of the thread here. And of course, so many people have that. I even thought of this. Tell me your opinion. I don't know if this would even work or if it would hold up. If you recorded a video in your faculties, so somebody listening to us, they're saying, wow, I don't want to be in that situation. What could I do? You record a video when you still have all of your capabilities while you're creating that document and you note the referenced video in the document saying, I recorded this video on such and such a day in sound mind. This is what I want in case there's any confusion. And you say in the video, I do not want to be in a state that other people are having to take care of me while I look at the clouds waiting for my life to end. Would that work? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I think more than likely, the, the family would want to bring the video in and play it for uh, the attending physician and probably for the treatment team um, to say this is what their, their wishes are. You know, I think one caveat to make is that dementia in and of itself is not a terminal condition. So just because somebody presents with dementia um, and has a leg injury, for example, you know, we may, we may provide um, certain treatment options that are going to keep somebody comfortable. But this person is not going to die immediately. You know, they're going to be likely on hospice or on, you know, long-term care uh, for a number of months or even years. So, you know, I think it's, it's great to make use of, of whatever medium um, is available to you to make sure that you're communicating clearly um, what you would want in specific scenarios. Are there any universal do not resuscitate indicators such as bands, rings, et cetera, that somebody could have on them all the time? That is a great question um, and one that I am not sure if I know the answer to. I know that we have do not resuscitate bracelets um, that we do provide to patients who have filled out um, out-of-hospital DNR forms, but I don't know if there are universal ones. That's a great question. Is it common for there to be emergencies in the ER, cases where people come in, they don't have anybody, they can't find the directive and a decision has, is that a common thing or not that often? Well, I can only speak here at Parkland Health. It is very common um, among our patient population because a number of our patients um, are homeless. Um, many of them do not have uh, 
kind of the relationships with their family that they once did. So uh, many of our uh, patients do not have um, people um, to speak on their behalf. So, you know, not having an advanced directive, and this is one of the things that we're really working on, is when we have people come in through the emergency department, we're doing our best to try to make sure that they have um, advanced care planning documents already filled out um, so that if they find themselves in that situation down the road, we know what they want. Um, we're not having to figure out who's their legal next of kin, is there an MPOA. Um, we have something that says this is what I would want in this, this situation. So, yeah, it is pretty common, unfortunately. What final thoughts do you have for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I've been in chaplaincy now for 15 years, and uh, the hardest thing that we see in our work is families who are torn apart with confusion, with the burden of not knowing what their loved one uh, would have wanted because they never had that conversation. For the most part, it, it doesn't take really more than about 15 seconds of courage uh, for us to have uh, the beginning of this conversation. So this is a very natural time um, for us to begin talking about what we would want if we were to find ourselves in a very unfortunate place. So I would really encourage uh, your listeners just to think about finding some space and some time to have that courageous conversation so that they can honor their loved one um, and what they would most want. This has been Krista White, the Director of Spiritual Care at Parkland Health. Steve, as we wrap up for today, it just is certainly a stark reminder of how important this is. You're so right, Thomas. Very important. Hey, it's a new year. Please consider preparing your advance directives now. And we want to thank our listeners. And we'll see you back next week on The Human Side of Healthcare.